We've all faced one, a threshold, a point of decision, a moment of choice. Do we stay or do we go? What awaits us on the other side? Will we cross the line from guilt to freedom, fear to faith, from doubt to trust, from darkness to light, from death to life? So you're here at the threshold. What will you do? Good weekend, everybody. All right. So I have noticed since last night that everybody seems so tired this weekend. And I can't figure out why. Was it because of the low pressure this week? And this is like the low pressure hangover? Or is it because the Twins aren't going to be in the World Series? Are you fearful that the Vikings won't make it to the Super Bowl? Are you just plain tired out? Okay, all right. Well, I, I hope, uh, I hope uh, you're encouraged today, and I hope that uh, your encouragement will come from God and his, and his Word. We are in a series called Courage, and uh, in this series, we've been talking about how to live a courageous life. Last weekend, we talked about the courage that it takes to remain successful in the eyes of God, because what so oftentimes happens, as we learned last weekend, is that when God gives us success, we claim it for ourselves. Look what I did, look what I accomplished, and we actually move away from God. That's why we have these stones up here, because we talked last weekend about how when God led Joshua and the children of Israel across the dry riverbed, because God walled up the Jordan River, that God then said, go back and take out 12 rocks and pile them up on the other side. There would be a memorial forever, it says, for you to remember that I am the source of all your success. And then God called them to visit that memorial and do three things, I said. First, remember God's greatness. Secondly, recite God's goodness. And thirdly, renew their faithfulness, their commitment to God. And we said that as important as that was for Israel, it's also important for you and for me to do the same. And I said, you know, one of the rocks that we need to have in our life is the Word of God. And whenever we come to the Word of God, we remember the greatness of God, the goodness of God. We recite our commitment to Him. Just your being here today is another way. Being in this place to worship and to receive from God's Word, and this is an opportunity for us to remember Recite and renew our commitment to him. Your giving, prayer, so many different ways. Because we don't want to lose source of our success. You know, that first group of Israelites under Moses' leadership had an opportunity to cross over into the promised land. But it seemed like all of a sudden, after only 40 days in the wilderness, they forgot about God's greatness. They weren't thinking and reciting God's goodness and they were disobedient instead of being obedient to go into the promised land. Do you remember that story? Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land to check out the land and to bring back a report of what was ahead of them. And so the 12 spies went in 
And then they came back and they brought the report. And I want to share with you the report. So if you want to take your Bibles out and turn to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to be looking at Numbers 13 and Numbers chapter 14, Joshua chapter 1 a little bit later on. So you might want to have those handy and available. Here's what it says. The men have come back and reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken for the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces, and they brought some samples. Now, over in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God gave them a more detailed preview that I want to read to you. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8, it says, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams, pools of water with fountains, and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It's a land of wheat and barley, grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates of olive oil and honey. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? It's a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It's a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. Now put yourself in the place of an Israelite. And that's what you're hearing these spies come back wouldn't you be excited? Wouldn't you be happy to go into that land and now start taking advantage of all the bounty and all the blessing that God has brought? Wouldn't it be an opportunity to say, God is so good, look how he's going to take care of us. Oh, how we wish our ancestors were here with us to see this moment. Can't wait, can't wait to go and embrace what God has for us. And then 10 of the 12 spies suddenly stop. And in the midst of all the good news, they turn it around and make it bad news. Have you ever met somebody like that? You know, some people have the gift of taking good news and making it bad news. Have you ever met somebody like that? Has that ever happened in your life? I am sure. I'm not going to ask my wife to testify to it today, but I am sure there have been times in my own family when I've taken good news and made it bad news. And these guys, they turn all this good news into bad news. They say it's a great land, it's a great opportunity, but it is unconquerable. We can't have it. We're not going to make it. We look at their bad news report, Numbers chapter 13, verse 28. They say, but the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants that are descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. In other words, this is a land just filled with parasites. Hello, Jebusites, Canaanites. Malachites, wow, we're slow today, all right? You know, parasites, okay, I'm moving on. It's not good. It worked last hour, all right. But Caleb, verse 30, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We, are certainly, we will certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we travel through and explore will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were huge. 
We even saw giants there that sent us to Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. In fact, things get so bad, they're ready to stone Moses, go back to Egypt. Can you imagine? I mean, the whole thing just turns sour and negative. In fact, there's a verse that's very troubling. Numbers chapter 14, verse 3. They cry out and they say, Why is the Lord taking us to this country and to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Do you hear what they're doing in that verse? They're in essence saying, The God who sent plagues on Pharaoh and released us from Egypt, the God who divided the Red Sea, the God who provides food and water in the wilderness, that God, our God, is not a big enough God, not a powerful enough God to defeat the gods of our enemies, of all those Canaanites and, and the others who live in that country. That's really sad, isn't it? They have such a small view of who God was. There was a book written many years ago. I think it's still available. You should pick it up if you don't have it. It's called, it's by J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips. And the title of the book is simply, Your God is Too Small. Your God is Too Small. Their God was too small. I want to ask you a question. Is your God too small? Or as a church, is our God too small? I think a lot of us say, no, 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 my God is, my God is great. He's powerful, he's almighty. But the question is, does the way we live, the way we think, the way we behave, does it match that same proclamation? Or is it possible we're kind of hypocritical? I know I could be at times where we can say, our God is great, there's no other like him, but then our attitude, our demeanor, the way we live our lives, the way we run our church is like God is too small. God is too small. The way we lead our families, God is too small. You know, one of the troubling things in this whole story is that they want to go back to Egypt. And I just want to say, really? You want to go back there? I mean, did they forget what Egypt was like? Egypt is where they felt the sting and the slice of the whip. Egypt is where their baby boys are being thrown into the Nile River. Are things so bad that you want to go back and live in Egypt? Is God so weak? Is God so bad that, that you'd rather be in Egypt under those, fall, under those demonic gods in Egypt than following the living God in freedom and in faith? You'd rather go back to slavery than to freedom? And then I realize how often we want to live in Egypt too. How often we just kind of give up and surrender and say, eh, just got to learn to live in Egypt. Just got to learn to be here. Just got to learn to put up with the culture. Just got to learn to live in the world. It's just got to be the way it is. A lot of people have that defeatist attitude. A lot of Christians have that defeatist attitude. Why is that? Why is it we're okay with living in Egypt? Why is it okay to just be a church in Egypt? I think it has to do with mindset. Mindset. See, all of us are born with a sinful nature. And our sinful nature, our very beings, are drawn toward the negative. Researchers who, who aren't even Christians tell us that the default of the mind is always to the negative, always to the negative. If I just stop talking for a while and give you like three minutes, within three minutes, your thoughts are going to drift to the negative. And usually the negative has to do with problems in our lives, in our families, in our world. 
And I think all of us would agree that right now we live in a very negative culture. I've been watching the news. It's so negative. Conversations are so negative. And we're always, always talking about problems. <clears throat> problems in our lives, problems in our families, problems in the world. I'm not here to say problems don't exist, but, but we talk about them a lot. We get consumed by our problems. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the way the world is, but that's not how we're supposed to be. Indeed, the Bible tells us that we are no longer of this world. The Bible tells us that we should no longer have the mindset of the world. In fact, the Bible says we're supposed to have a new mindset is the mindset of Christ. We are to have the mind of Christ in this life. And that mindset of Christ is to be very different from the mindset of the world because if you think about the mindset of Jesus, read the Gospels, was very positive, was very optimistic, was very good. He wasn't, I mean, he was a realist. He saw the trouble in the world. He saw the darkness in the world. He saw negativity around him. He dealt with problems every day. But he looked at the negativity and looked at the problems as an opportunity for God's goodness to be seen. And that's what we have to do as well. And we need to remember something's happened inside of us if we're the followers of Christ. Now, I've been reading a little bit over in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4. I encourage you to read it later today and take your time reading it because it is just pregnant and full of wonderful, powerful truth for our lives. And over at 1 John chapter 4, we learn that we're no longer of this world. Something's happened to us. It's like God took us out, put us back in with a different mindset and a different idea. So, for instance, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he says, you, dear children, are from God. And he keeps saying that over and over again. You're not from the world. You're not of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You are from God and have overcome them. That is the world, the mindset of the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Verse 5, he says, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. That's what, that's what Israel's doing. They're speaking from the viewpoint of the world. That's what we oftentimes do. We speak from the viewpoint of the world, from the viewpoint of the news, from the viewpoint of the, of the culture. We're not supposed to speak from the viewpoint of this world. We're supposed to speak from the viewpoint of Christ and his word. He says, they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, he says. And then he says the most profound thing that we'll unpack sometime later on, but I want to get it in your mind so you can wrestle with it a little bit, and that's found over in verse 17. He says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus, it says in NIV. But a literal Greek translation goes like this. Because even as the one, capital O, but even as the one is, so also we are in the world. Do you hear what he's saying? You're not of this world. You're of Christ. Because his spirit lives in you. You're walking and talking. You're the walking, talking presence, not just individually, but as a church. Because we're the church of Christ. You're the walking, talking community of God in the world. That's what Israel is supposed to be, the walking, talking community of God. But they took the viewpoint of the world. 
Who are you? What are we? What are we going to be like? You say, but I got problems in my life. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I got problems in my life. Here's the, here's the problem with our problems. We take the viewpoint of the world and we see our problems as a downgrade, don't we? But God, God has a different perspective. When God sees our problems, he looks at our problems as an upgrade. Our problems are an opportunity to claim the promises of God, which lead then into the provisions of God. Look at, is, look at Israel. They're in Egypt. Huge problem. Wilderness. Bigger problem. But there's this promise for them of a new land. And if they'll move into that land, they'll experience the provision of God. I'm not talking about health and wealth here. I'm just talking about one of the most beautiful provisions of God mentioned in John chapter 15, which is the abundant life. Our lives are supposed to be like a life where a river of God's presence is flowing out of us continuously. That's a whole different perspective, isn't it? So I have a question I'm going to give you today. It's a new question for me. It's a question I'll ask the rest of my life. It has really taken hold of me this week. It's a very simple question. You can write it down. And it's a question I want you to ask God, not me, not any of the pastoral staff. I want you to ask God this question when you face a problem, whatever the problem is. Here's the question. Lord, who is it you want to be in my life? Lord, who is it you want to be in my life that you could not be without these circumstances? Lord, who is it you're wanting to be in my life that you could not be if it were not for these circumstances? If Israel stays in Egypt, they'll never know God as their deliverer, as their provider, as their protector, as the great God that he is. Paul said, Lord, remove this thorn in my flesh. He asked God three times, but God said no. And I'm going to translate this and kind of paraphrase it. In essence, what God said to him is, Paul, if I leave the thorn in the flesh, you'll never know my power. Because God says to him, when you are weak, then I am strong. Lord, who is it you want to be in my life that you could not be if I did not have these circumstances? I want you to ask God. And I don't want you to just ask and expect an answer immediately. I want you to persevere in that question because God has his ways and his times of revealing that to you and me. That's your assignment this week. And I'm assigning it to myself as well. So what is it about this new group and Joshua, that they're willing to go into the promised land. There's a revealing verse about one of the spies named Caleb. Now, there are two, Caleb and Joshua, who have a very different view. Let's go, let's take it now. But notice what it says in in Numbers 14, 24 about Caleb. It says, but because my servant Caleb has a what? All together? And follows me what? I will bring him into the land he, want, he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Notice it says that he had a different spirit. Now, I want you to exchange the small s out, New Testament times now. In the Old Testament, it was visitation of the spirit. In the New Testament, it's habitation of the spirit. And I want you to think with me, God has given me, you, a different capital S spirit, the Holy Spirit, And I'll know his presence and power to the degree that I wholeheartedly follow him. Holiness, obedience. 
What, what is it about people who have a different spirit that God works in and works through? What is it about a church that has a different spirit? I want to suggest to you, we're going to use our stones this weekend, next weekend. It's a part one, part two message. I want to suggest to you that there are at least 12 qualities you'll find. And the first quality, and I know you're going to be amazed by my strength once again, one hand and he picks up a 200-pound stone. All right? The first quality is going to be vision. Vision. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, all right? And let's look at the first six verses of that passage of Scripture. It says, After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead these people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever, you're, where, wherever you set foot, you'll be on land I have given you. Now he gives the boundaries. He gives it very clearly. He says, from the Negev wilderness to the south, the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. That's a pretty specific vision. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you. That's the key. As I was with Moses, I will not fail you. I won't abandon you no matter how hard it gets. You can count on me. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to the ancestors I would give them. Now, if you were to find vision, one of the popular definitions, and it's a good definition, is that a vision is a preferred picture of the future. But you know, people can come up with their own preferred pictures of the future. We're talking about God's preferred picture of the future. So I want to press that definition of vision more, and I want to add to it, and I want to say to you that, that vision, really, vision is looking at life through the lens of God. Vision is looking at life through the lens of his spirit and his word. Now, different lenses magnify things more. In other words, the more powerful the lens is, the more you can see. You can actually see things that you could not see with a weaker lens. And so God visionaries throughout time and scripture have been men and women who have looked to the lens of God and they've seen things that others cannot see by faith, by conviction. And that's how God expects us to live our lives, for our lives, for our family, and for our church. And so our vision is based on the lens of his word. For instance, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, says, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He goes on and says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always. So he goes with us even to the end of the age. Just like he went with his people into the promised land. Acts 1.8 elaborates the vision more. says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Holy Spirit driven, remember the capital S, and you'll be my witnesses telling people about me. Now, this is where I get my here, near, and far from. Everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as a church, we've, been, we've wrestled with this. And a couple of years ago, we came up with, from study and conviction, we came up with our, what we call Vision 22, that is, 
we're praying that God would allow us by the year 2022 to accomplish some significant things. And we put it this way. That our vision is to impart the hope of the gospel to 700,000 people here, near, and far over the next seven years and to provide a clear pathway towards spiritual maturity. We want it We want this based on the word of God and we want this big enough so we don't depend on ourselves but we depend on God and God gets to manifest his presence and God wows us with what he does in us and through us. And every once in a while it's good for us to back up and say, how's it going? What has God been up to? And God's been up to a lot. We try our best locally and globally with our global partners to keep track of how are we doing in reaching the 700,000? Meaning, giving them the hope, sharing with them Christ. And we're, we're well on our way to exceeding the 700,000. God is at work, marvelous ways. By year 2022, we'll be able to say, God allowed us and through us to share the hope of the gospel with more than 700,000 people. Now, if we stop being faithful, that won't happen. If we stop trusting, it won't happen. If we want to go back to Egypt, it's not going to happen. So we have to press forward into it. So I want you to know there's been some progress. We've talked about how important it is for all of us, all of us, to be thinking about those who don't know Jesus yet. Why else did God leave us here? Why else does he have his church on earth? And so we talked about this thing called Adopt Seven. And we said, think of seven people in your life who may not know Christ. I don't care if it's five, seven, seven, it doesn't matter. We just made seven. Perfect number. And we said, do three things for them. Pray for them. Share with them. I'm sorry. Pray for them. Serve them. And then find a way to share Christ with them. It may take a while. It may happen quickly. But have those people in your life. We also initiated a ministry called Adopt Seven. I'm sorry. Adopt Seven. Called We Are Four. And we've been kind of talking about this for the last couple of years. We want, the pe- we want people in the world around us to know that we are for them. Like Jesus is for people. He's for sinners. He's for them discovering hope and eternal life and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And as best as we can tell this past year, about 20% of you were involved in some we are for outreach that we did to those around us. Some of the things we do are very simple expressions of God's love. Some are more profound. For instance, this past year, we had all of our campuses packed about 1,200 uh, Valentine bags that we gave away to schools that we're connected with, whether it's Emerson School or it's Lucy Craft Laney or others that we've been working with, and we blessed, we blessed them with those Valentine bags. Or if you remember, we had a vulnerable children's weekend last January. About 700 of you went out and visited some of the tables that was everything from Hennepin County, Foster, Adopt, to uh, Compassion Ministry. I had the most beautiful conversation about two weekends ago. I was leaving after service, and on my way out, there was a, a couple from Wooddale Church, and they said, we want to tell you something. And the gentleman said, I hope I can get this out, you know, and keep it together, and he did. He said, we went to the Hennepin County table, and we got all kinds of information. We talked, interacted with them, but God didn't lead us at this point to do anything with it. However, we have a, we have two of our kids, uh, uh, one of our kids and, and their spouse, who live in another state uh, out west, and they've not been able to have children. So we started telling them everything we had experienced and what we heard, and as a result of it, they said the short of it is they are now adopting, in the process of adopting two children. 
And they said to me, you know, if we hadn't done that here, that wouldn't be happening there. Isn't that cool how God works in marvelous and wonderful ways? Yes, give God a hand. All right. Last year, you gave over 41,000 pounds of food to those who are hungry and in need. Through Sheridan's story, we provide uh, food for uh, several schools to, for children on the weekends who have food insecurities. Uh, we have folks who monthly serve in, at Source Ministries, providing uh, ministry to people. Uh, we've got 125 who, um, uh, with 26 volunteering and being trained to do outreach to women coming out of trafficking here in Minneapolis. I mean, I could just go on. Our association with Teen Challenge down at Loring Park, uh, the thousand backpacks that we packed for veterans that was distributed to them, our education ministry in the borough, 43 tutors serving Somalians, Lucy Craft Laney, we've got tutors there. Operation Christmas Child, 1,100 boxes that we prepared and sent last year. I just want you to know that when we say we are for, I want you to know that Wooddalers are showing that we are for. God is doing good things. We relaunched our Edina campus the last several years. God's doing amazing things there. We started our, our Loring Park campus. We never thought we'd be suited for urban ministry, and God's doing profound things that at Loring Park. We started our microsites, what God is doing at two senior living centers is absolutely amazing. I mean, it could go on how God is at work when God's people are willing to be, willing to be his presence in the world. But I wanna share with you just one story, and this is just one of many stories of how God is at work. I'm gonna read this to you, I was given permission. This person said, I had grown up in a different kind of church family, but when I moved out of the house, I started walking straight away from Jesus. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. I had addictions, pride controlled me, and I caused a lot of hurt and pain to the ones I loved the most. I eventually got married, and shortly after the marriage, it ended. I found myself in a place where the first 30 years of my life had left me without almost nothing. Then Jesus showed up, like the way they say that, then Jesus showed up. From several different directions, I started being drawn to him. I started dating someone and suggested to her that we try a new church that I found on Google called Wooddale. So good things can come from Google. <laughs> Visiting a church can be scary, but our first visit was so different than what either of us had ever experienced before. We were hooked and excited to come back for more. Soon we found ourselves planning our weekends around church so we could be sure to attend. I love that. When the average Christian in America only goes, goes less than two times a month, that's profound. Oh, that we would do the same thing. We joined Starting Point, started serving on Sundays, and joined a life group. After wrestling with the idea for a while, I got baptized to take another step and express my faith in Jesus. Now I'm even leading a life group and so excited about it. And the girl that went with me to Wooddale that first time is soon going to marry me right there at Wooddale. Jesus changed my life in so many big ways. We, excuse me, he welcomed me with open arms. In a short time, he has rid my life of garbage that was dragging me down and has filled my life with joy and love and peace like I never experienced before. That's good news. That's what God has called us to do. That's what God has called us to be. We have 11 more rocks we're going to look at next weekend. And we're going to be talking about where do we go from here with Vision 22? 
How can we, how can we better enhance its truth? The truth of the hope, the assurance, the certainty of Christ. And I pray and I trust that like Joshua and those Israelites, you'll be willing to press into what God has. And any problems we face will be God's opportunities to be for us what he could not be if he didn't allow us into those circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we thank you, uh, first of all, for drawing us out of this world and into relationship with you through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, you have sent us back into this world, back to be your witnesses, back to be your presence, back to be your voice, back to be your power. Lord, we want to not get caught up in Egypt, but be caught up in your kingdom, be used by you to accomplish, Lord, your will and your purposes. So, Father, I pray Stir our hearts, stir our minds to let you be yourself in us and through us. And for that, God, we'll give you glory, we'll give you praise, and we'll give you honor. In Jesus' name, amen.